Hello, and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. My name is Nick Argyris, and this week I'm looking for uh, the best. No. Oh, wait. (laughs) Wait, wait. We're a food book podcast now. Yeah. Right? We had that conversation off air. No, that's ridiculous. Um, I'm so sick of food and talking about food. Um, (laughs) You're full. full. Who would have thought? Rather, instead, we will be looking for the best National Book Award winner. Ever? Well, this year, Joe. This year, the, the winners were just announced, mm. and uh, we're going to do our own sleuthing. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Like, the National Book Awards has given out their awards, and they break yeah. it into different categories, but we are bringing the final contenders toe-to-toe, yeah, man-to-man, woman-to-woman. They don't have, like, a best-in-show, and so that's what re- we're re- re- really bringing to the table tonight. When, you know, folks, this is a very relevant uh, analogy, so I'll just go ahead and do it. Several months ago, the (laughs) Baseball World Series wrapped up. And the Baseball World Series involves two teams that are from different leagues. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing today is kind of like that. We're bringing together the American League, which is obviously the lesser league because it's younger and more foolish. And this is represented by Joe's book. And the National League, which is mine, which is cooler and older and just generally way better, which is my book. Sure. It does sound relevant. Um, okay. That just seemed like he wanted to talk about his book there, Joe. It's a baseball um, reference. No, it's referencing okay. baseball. America's pastime. Yeah. People are always mean to the World Series because they're like, it's not the whole world. <laughs> uh, and to help me are two high school English teachers, Ian and Joe. Hi, Nick. My name is Joe Holshue. I'm a high school English teacher. And Nick, if you are looking for the best National Book Award winner, I brought the best genre of book, which is nonfiction books. I read Tia Miles, All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, uh, a black family keepsake. It's a long title. Hello, it's me, Dr. Ian DeYoung. For today only, I'm a high school English teacher, and today only, I brought the winner of the 2021 National Book Award for Fiction. And here's the title. Hell of a book, or the altogether factual, wholly bona fide story of a big dreams, hard luck, American-made mad kid. And this is a book written by Jason Mott. May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely <laughs> enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. <laughs> who, who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. So um, what are the National Book Awards? Why don't you rem- refresh our memory here? I will, I will start. I just I have a little poem. Since, oh, God. You, you know, I bring poems to this podcast on a regular basis. So. <laughs> See, I'm afraid that the litheads at home are going to be like, oh, Ian wanted to read his poem, so Nick, like, set him up for that. Litheads, we, That's had, not what happened. we had no idea Ian had read Clearly, poem for this Clearly because Nick is such a lover of poetry. It's like the last thing I wanted. <laughs> well, good news. You got the last thing. That's saving right. the best for last. Here's Read my poem. your poem, Ian. My poem is called Punishment. And this is one <laughs> I did write myself. Mm-hmm. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Uh, born ready. My book this week won the National Book Award. Its author should not be put to the sword. Thank you. 
Okay. It's really good. It doesn't really establish what the National Book Award is. Um, well, it's something that keeps you from being put to the sword. I think that's <laughs> it almost. Yeah, it almost had nothing to do with the question I asked. Um, it also could have like, used some more green I eggs, I just strong-armed my way into that oh. poem. Yeah, he just keeps talking about his book, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Joe, he, he do you also, know what the National Book Awards yeah, are? Yeah, <laughs> I sure do. I would also like to point out that Ian is trying to trick you. He keeps identifying his book as a National Book Award winner. I would like to point mm. out both of our books have won National Book well, Awards. Well, Joe, that sounds He's more like a like you problem that you're not doing this than a me problem. Oh, Nick, the National Book Awards are a yearly prize that they give out to recognize like the the best book. Um, the National Book Foundation is a foundation that gives out awards for the best book. There's been a bunch of really famous winners. Um, William Faulkner, Ralph Ellison, John Cheever, uh, Philip Roth. I'm reading the list right now. John Updike, Norman Mailer. I'm just going to the names that I know. Elizabeth Bishop, Saul Bella, Tony Morrison, Flannery O'Connor, and then like a whole bunch more. Uh, they give out five awards every year. They give out one for fiction nonfiction, hmm. poetry, translated literature, and young people's literature. We have chosen the two best categories, nonfiction and fiction, <laughs> and we are duking it out. <laughs> I didn't um, know there were so few awards. I just always envision if there's a like a ceremony like this, it's just that you gotta, you know, you make it stretch. <laughs> right. The, the first night is for like special effects. Get those advertising spots. Right. Yeah. <laughs> special <laughs> achievements in book jacket design. Um, Joe, you do say something in this little spiel, which I'm curious about, namely into it. You say they, they give this out. Who is they? Are we talking about, I don't know, the Yukon women's basketball team or um, some grocery cart collectors from Fargo, North Dakota or what? Well, I can't confirm or deny the influence of the Yukon Huskies in this. Uh, however, it does say that it is a nonprofit organization. I assume this is like one of those things where the establishment gives war awards to establishment figures, right? Like this is, is this an inside job? Is that what you're getting at, Ian? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm legitimately curious if you had any insight on this. Ian, do you know? <laughs> um, well, they, they kind of brand themselves as, you know, the, the, the writers like – yeah, like like this the is academy. this is for people in the industry. <laughs> this isn't you know your your glitzy glamorous Pulitzers or Nobels. This is this is like writers are the ones who are who are judging and awarding these. But um, it's uh, the National Book Foundation, and who knows yeah. what goes on behind those shadowy doors so big big book right it is opaque here it does say there's 25 judges every year um and they are made up of a combination of writers translators critics librarians and booksellers oh i thought you're gonna say and the oprah awards. and the yukon women's basketball team oh nice it's good to see them involved mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well welcome lit heads to you don't know lit a weekly or as we call it strongly podcast where strongly every podcast. week we pick a theme and uh, Ian and Joe bring a book, and we decide a winner uh, just to upset one of them. And, um, and it of works course, we have some week. show rules to it works every week. That's right. And um, <laughs> it really does. A rare, and, uh, a rare admission week, from Joe. <laughs> How poisonous this is to his very soul. Uh, of course, we have some rules to keep us on track. Um, rule number one is omit needless words. Nope. 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 <laughs> rule on, number Nick. one. Remember Wait, the rules. Rule number one. Only unavoidable spoilers. Only unavoidable spoilers, gentlemen. Rule number two is omit needless, needless words, words, Joseph. Joe. Mr. Harvey. Mm-hmm. And rule number three. Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing that's important here, of course. And, of course. So oh. I, I expect you guys to bring it. I want to add 
our fourth rule, which we've kind of gotten away from, but it's an important rule. And I think especially important this week because we're talking about literature. This isn't like robots and space lasers. This is literature with a capital L. So remember our fourth rule, Mm. no downers. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes. And don't forget your fourth meals either. Yeah. Brought to you by this is Taco Bell. Of course, we have shadow rules. I don't need to repeat them, but you all know what they are. They are this. Love yourself. Uh. Joseph, do you want to take 30 seconds and tell me what your award-winning book is about? Absolutely. Nick, in 2007, an old cloth sack showed up in a box of rags at a flea market in Tennessee. It probably would have been discarded years before, except on it was a hand-stitched inscription that read, To my great-grandmother Rose, mother of Ashley, she gave her this sack when she was sold at age nine in South Carolina. It had a tattered dress, three handfuls of pecans, a braid of Rose's hair, and I told her it will be filled with my love always. She never saw her again. Ashley is my grandmother, Ruth Middleton, 1921. It's kind of a long inscription to sell. No, what? Okay. Yeah, that's your time. That's, you know, Ian, he is really, yeah, what is this? Reading an inscription. I want the back cover. I don't want the whole fucking book. It's on the cover cover. It's the inscription. I've been really rereading some, uh, listening some old episodes. And I'll tell you, Joe, you're really pushing this 30 mark. (laughs) Um, Joe, did you say that the bag was full of hair? It, it, the uh, At one point, the bag would have been full. Uh, not full of hair. I did not say full of hair. At one point, the bag would have had a lock of hair. Oh. Don't trick me, Ian. I know your tricks. So I think we, we learned a lot there. Uh, Ian? Yes. You have 30 seconds. The myth of Sisyphus. He disrespected the gods. He was doomed to push a rock up a mountain over and over. And just when it got to the top, the rock would roll back down also known as Groundhog Day Syndrome. This week, my book is about the Sisyphean question. Is it really true that the more things change, the more they stay the same? This book is, well, a hell of a book. Published in 2021 by poet and novelist Jason Mott. 336 pages. Wow, tight. Um, You know, I I feel like if we're going to bring, you know, books that were brought to this book, Books that are the winners of awards that were, you know, meticulously judged based on, you know, all sorts of different factors, then, you know, we, we have to stick to the rules on this show, too, because we're going to pick a best in show tonight, yeah. you know, best and I, I don't want somebody to be able to pull apart our process and say, no. like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, <laughs> the fuck's Nick? <laughs> <laughs> Nick? <laughs> Who exactly is this Nick Argyris person? And what does he know? Yeah, what does he know? Um, okay, so... Uh, Joe, uh, let me let me give you some redemption. We can we, we won't let you stew in in your thirty second botch failure. <laughs> let's um, let's uh, let's jump right into your book. Why don't you tell me what it's all about? Absolutely, I would like to point out. I would like to begin by defending myself that my thirty second botch was not necessarily a botch, right? Like mm. I just read well, the inscription that's on the sack. It just happened to take like twenty eight seconds to do it. Is that what it's called? A sack? It's a sa- yeah. They keep calling it a sack. It's like so. Okay, so. Let me tell you, Joe. Story. Tell us about your sack. <laughs> oh God, can we not do that anymore, please? No, no, no. I, I, no. I want to hear about it too. All right, all right. So, in 2007, this old cloth sack shows up at a flea market. Um, it's it looks like an old bag, except it has an inscription sewn into the side of it, and this inscription was sewn in in 1921. That inscription mentions three different names: Rose. Ashley 
and Ruth. It says that this sack was like the only thing that Ashley was given when she was sold away from her family at age nine in South Carolina. And then it lists the contents of the sack. And those contents are a tattered dress, three handfuls of pecans, and a braid of her mother's hair. Um, And then, of course, it was filled with love, which it also says on that sack. So that sack shows up at a flea market in 2007. And Nobody, like, there's no history attached to this. It's just kind of this crazy artifact that shows up in a bag, in a bag of rags, literally, like in a rag bin. Um, this novel, like this, I'm sorry, this this piece of history, this, this piece of historical literature, this piece of historical scholarship is Tia Miles trying to get to the bottom of, hey, who is Rose? Who is Ashley? Who is Ruth? And what exactly is going on with this bag? Joe. Hey, Ian, yes. we made we sure made a lot of jokes about Joe's really serious book. <laughs> yeah, guys. <laughs> I hope you feel terrible. Because I feel... Tia Miles, if you're listening to this, I am so sorry for I that. I feel a little bit bad about yeah. mocking your book by TMI. Um, for sure, for sure. I will say this. It sounds a little bit like a real-life mystery story. Is that fair to say? Yeah, okay, so it is a real-life de- story. Maybe detective. It, like, not mystery, but detective story. Yeah, it's a real life detective story, and sounds I sounds like, like we have the, a mystery and a detective. Well, the really compelling thing about it is like there's just the one clue, right? It's a detective story with this bag and this inscription, this cotton sack and this inscription, and Tia Miles um, does some really cool stuff in here to to the best of her ability tell the story of Rose, Ashley, and Ruth. Classic. So uh, I have some questions. Okay. Can you clarify again? Where was this found? Okay. This was found at a flea market in Knoxville, Just, Tennessee. Okay. 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 Where, okay. Do you want to give us like the high level of, of the book? Like what, what is this book? Is this, this is just her journey to find out what this whole story is about. And obviously I'm sure it gets, it, <laughs> she gets to the bottom of it. <laughs> well, okay. This is the interesting, um, but, yeah, let me give you the highlight. I don't know of this if that's book. a spoiler. No, let, let me give you like a couple of sentences about Tia Miles first, because I think it matters who she is quite a bit here. Yeah. Tell us about Tia Miles. Yeah. So she is a, like she's an historian, like like a, like a studied at well, studied at a bunch of places, has taught at Berkeley, has taught at the University of Michigan. Now she's like a professor at Harvard. Like she is like a, a, a heavy hitter. That's, she's like she's a slugger in the world. of And, history. and just to be cool. clear. You said an historian, so that's how we know it's serious. I did say an historian. That's how we know. Yep, that it, yeah. Um, she's a former recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant, and now she's a National Book Award winner. So pretty good job, Tia Miles. Hmm. Okay, cool. Okay, she... Her history, her scholarship focuses on the black experience. It focuses a lot on like Native Americans. It focuses a lot on like slave trade, things like that. And one day she was given a presentation at a conference about something else. And a reporter came up to her afterwards and he says, hey, have you ever heard of Ashley's sack? And Tia hadn't like Miss Miles had never heard of that. She said, nope, never have. And he's like, I got to send you something. He emails her and she basically, she like dives down this rabbit hole of this this sack like this story that this sack tells it reminds me of henrietta Lacks, kind of this thing where the one about the the cancer 
cells that were replicated and we get to learn all about the yeah. family of the person who they were yeah. harvested from and so on and so forth. Like it sounds like the bag is less important than the people that it connects. Like it's a framing device or a structural device rather that allows her to draw these stories together. Yeah. Well, and the coolest thing about this book and, and let me, let me, I guess, lead off with it here. The coolest thing about this book is there is no reason on the planet she should ever find out anything about Rose. There's no reason on the planet she should ever find out anything about Ashley. And she certainly, like, can't be sure she's telling their actual story when she dives into the historical record. Like, mm-hmm. she dives into the historical record. She pulls apart things like census reports, wills, newspaper announcement, court decrees, um, slave narratives, travelogues from Europeans, like, visiting the South, uh, inventory records. Like, she pulls all of this stuff together, and she puts together what is her best approximation of what life would have been like for Ruth and Ashley and later Rose. Um, I'm sorry, Rose and Ashley and then later Ruth. One of the cool things about it, though, is she really goes to some great lengths to, like, it's not, it feels like it's just guessing and it feels like it's just making things up. Like that's what it seems like on the outside. And when I started reading this book, I'm like, okay, well, she's not actually going to tell us about Rose. She's not actually going to tell us about Ashley. But then she does these things where she's like, okay, we think we found what plantation Rose was on, right? Like we think we found where she lived. We pulled together all the plantation records from South, from South Carolina, like ever right? (laughs) Like all the plantation records. And we looked for the name Rose and we found like 200 uh, instances of it. Like Rose is spelled with an S, Rose is spelled with a Z, Rosanna, Rosie, all these things. Then we put together Ashley, which is a much less common name. And we found like 10 instances Uh of it. And then we looked for anywhere that a Rose and an Ashley might have been in contact with each other. And we found like three instances of it. And of those three, for a variety of reasons, we think this it's these two. The dates line up. The cotton sack would have, like, this is a time that they were making cotton nice. sacks like this. Like, when these two, sure. like, it's all stuff like that. So it's like, Jesus, I think she just found Rose and Ashley. Like, that's amazing. Like, what an amazing piece of, like, historical scholarship. And we're, like, 20 pages into this book. At oh, this point. so you haven't spoiled <laughs> anything. Okay, good. Because I thought you were going to be like, and no. that's it. That's the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, so yeah, so it's obviously like uh it seems like a couple things. So it's like how, right? Like you could talk about how for a while, right? Where how did she find these people? How did she do the pro- like the process of narrowing it down, the process of Absolutely. understanding it. But like so who, who who did she find? Tell us about what what was in this mysterious sack, Joe? <laughs> okay, so what story so, was it telling? So this sack was a gift from Rose to her daughter, Ashley. And essentially what happened is Rose would have had Ashley, um, would have been her mother for about 10 years, about nine years here. And the plantation owner died. And what happened frequently when plantation owners died is their estates were liquidated. So people that pe- celebrated. It was like the end of return of the Jedi. Uh, no, what happened when plantation orders died is their estates were liquidated. Like um, their kids wanted inheritance. They didn't necessarily want to be plantation owners. So everything was sold. And these families, these slave families were broken up. This was a sack that Rose had prepared for Ashley ahead of time. And it was meant as like a, 
just a sack full of provisions. Like there was three things in it. There was pecans in it. There was a braid of hair in it. And there was a tatter. There was a dress in it. Okay. So part of it was like, Hey, here's a go bag. You are going to be sold. This is a go bag. It's meant for, to like get you by until you land somewhere new. Right. Yeah. Wow. But then it also goes into like the symbolic resonance that these three things would have had, right? So when she talks about Ashley's dress and the dress that was in it, she talks about like the the type of cloth that it would have been made out of and how we know it was that type of cloth and that what that type of cloth would have told other people. When she talks about um when she talks about the hair, it talks about like the symbolic connection of like giving somebody hair and this like bond of love that it represented, this this um this like symbolic protection that it offered, it actually led me down a rabbit hole. And then I want to talk about pecans. Don't let me forget to talk about pecans, but it led me down. Please remind me pecans, but it led me down this rabbit hole. Yes. Pecans of these things called a conjure sack. Have you heard of these before? Conjure sacks. It rings a bell. Nope. Yeah. Um, sometimes they're called, one second. Sorry, I have it in my notes here. Give me a moment. It sounds like it's from Harry Potter, but I am pretty afraid to make jokes while you talk about this book. So why don't you yeah. just keep going? <laughs> okay. So it, a conjure sack, a conjure bag, they're given like a thousand different names, like a, like a gris gris bag, a hand mojo hand, a conjure hand, a lucky hand, a conjure bag. And essentially it was a, maybe a prayer, maybe a bell, right? Like it's kind of this brief or this old like um, African-American folk belief called hoodoo. And essentially what you do is you build an amulet and that amulet is this walking prayer. So you get a flannel bag and inside of that flannel bag, you put one or more what they call magical items, right? Like things that are going to offer protection, things that are going to symbolize love. Um, and those, those like magical items, right. Are meant to, in some cases be very practical, like Ashley, Ashley sack here, like the pecans and the dress and that, but it's also meant as this external representation of protection. Um, and it's this really cool thing. And one of the things that, that my author makes an argument for here is she says, look, the dual purpose of this would have been very obvious to the mother here. Like this is meant as a practical bag, but it is also meant as this totem of protection for her daughter as she goes out okay. into the world. So my, my question was like, does she, does she intend this to be, does she intend this to be a keepsake of some kind? And, and, and I guess I was expecting you to say, no, this is just practical, but it sounds like she wants it to be, um, to have kind of a, um, what's the word? Like a, like a non-practical and I, an idealistic, uh, value to her daughter. Like you're, you're taking a part of me with you. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that Miles talks a lot about is like that hair specifically, because like there, there's a practical purpose to take a dress with you. There's a practical purpose to take three handfuls of pecans with you. A braid of hair is less practical. Right. So I think there absolutely is a keepsake element to this. Like there absolutely is this thing that I want you to take with me just to symbolize love and connection. And I just want you to take a piece of mom with you as you go. That's pretty heavy. So it's um, what? Uh, that's good. That's great. 
it sounds like this is a really interesting book. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> and it the, sounds the like it's that... incredibly emotional and compelling as well. <laughs> is, is it so written the... like a mystery book? Like, is it like let me unweave this like mystery and let's like you know it's it kind of happens in front of your eyes together? Or how how is the story like um, told and and can how I, does it read? Can I can I piggyback yeah, so on that it question? Yeah. So it almost like a, I think a lot yeah. of times in historic this this kind of historical unpacking um this genre i'm thinking about like documentaries do this too there is a degree of conjectural freedom where it's like well most uh, enslaved persons in this part of the country did this so we can guess that she you know she said a prayer like does it do that or is it just like no this is what we know we don't know beyond this much at all no, oh, so can so, I piggyback on that? No, stop piggybacking. Okay. Sometimes with yes, documentaries, do. they they fuck with the audience. They fuck sure. with the reader. They fuck with the the Netflix documentary viewer, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, like let me take you along this journey that I'm clearly like weaving. Mm-hmm. Does it respect the reader? It's good. <laughs> I'm Ken Burns. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I like Ken Burns. <laughs> um, okay. Out of all those options that you guys gave me, I feel like this is multiple choice. It does not read like a mystery. No, like it reads very much like we have this sack. This is our best guess as to what's going on with Ruth and Rose and Ashley. So it acknowledges like historical gaps. Yeah, well, it acknowledges historical gaps. But Ian, you're talking about this idea of conjecture. I think one of the most, the word that keeps coming to mind when I read this book is oh my God, this is impressive. Like the amount of work that she's done here is absolutely impressive. So we don't know anything about about Rose, right? But as, you know, as we pinpoint this place in time where Rose would have been separated from Ashley and Ashley would have been on the auction block, Miles goes back in to all sorts of slave narratives, first-person accounts, European travel logs, and says, like, look, we don't know what Ruth said. We don't know what how Ruth felt. We don't know how Ashley felt. But here is a first-person account of somebody who the exact same thing happened to in the sure. exact same spot, mm. right? Here's a first-person account of somebody who is sitting in the gallery, like, watching this happen, who is disconnected, right? Like, and they tell you about those people's experiences. And what you end up with is, like, this stitching together of oh it's almost like sonar Mm. or radar or something like that right where you get like enough voices in the room right enough like sound waves bouncing across the room that you can see the shape of the story it's reconstructive right like you you like triangulate it it's reconstructive yeah you echolocate it um and it's cool. Like, like, like I think the, the thing that keeps coming back to me is it, like this book is impressive and it's cool. And it's something that when I started reading, I was like, ah, this is going to be too much con- uh, conjecture, that yeah. word con- conjecture, too much conjecture. Yeah. I'm like, this is going to be too much conjecture. Like they're just going to be making stuff up. But as I read through this book, I'm totally on board with every step of the way. And, and it's, exactly as horrifying as you think it is, right? Like it is a firsthand account of the horrors of slavery in a bunch of different places, but it's also told in a way that doesn't feel like a history. It feels like a 
story. And I think that's always going to be more compelling. It's always going to be more interesting to listen to a story about these people. Like she kind of gives slavery a face, right? In this. Right. Would you say that this is a downer or is it kind of like, and that's fine. I think there are some, some books which like we should just be like, yeah, this, wow, dang, this is not pleasant. But is this a book that's a, a downer or does it kind of redeem it with the, I don't know, the positivity of the discovery and the connection? Yeah. So, so no, I definitely have redemption here. And I think like while Miles goes through and, you know, paints pretty vivid pictures of what's going on here, she, the tone of the book is often hopeful. And it always keeps coming back to this, this sack as a framing device, as a narrative device, as a structure, whatever you want to call it. And um, I, I was reading around the book after I finished it, as as we so often do. And I found an interview somewhere. I, I, I believe this is a quote from the author here, where she says, look, this story is set in a spot like in our national story where great wrongs were committed, like deep sufferings were felt. But at the same time, like the existence of this sack represents love, right? And it was like, not just love, it's this really fragile, really flimsy thing that has existed up until today, like the actual object of this sack. So she's like, yes, there were deep, there were great wrongs. Yes, there were deep sufferings. But like, this is a story about love between a mother and a daughter and a granddaughter. And it's a love that was sustained against all odds. And like this sack, if it represents anything, it represents this vision of survival for future generations, which I mean, come on, if that's not hopeful, I don't know what is. That's awfully nice. It's like the, the, it's like the talisman thing sort of paid off. Like, right. It's like, it has protected her up until now. Like Ashley and Rose and Ruth are with us today. Like they have been protected. They have survived into the 21st century and we're reading an echolocation of their story. Yeah. I think there's a lot more we could talk about here, but it sounds really interesting, Joe. Yeah. It's a, it's a super interesting book. It's a super interesting book. It's a super impressive book. It's a, a yeah, it sounds like a really engaging uh, way to, to talk about it. That but, put, put it this way at, at the end of the ebook version that I read, there's something like a hundred pages of footnotes. Like this is like a real historical thing, right? Like just these massive, massive, like ew, footnotes at the end. Right. Um, right. It is by far the most engaging book I've ever read that finishes with a hundred <laughs> pages of footnotes. <laughs> well, and let's not sell short as we've discussed on the show before the sheer joy mm-hmm. of reading a book coming to the end and saying, Oh, dang, I thought I had 100 pages to go, but it's just footnotes. (laughs) (laughs) It's just footnotes. That was a joyful moment for me, yes. Hey, boys. Hey, boys. Hey, boys. Hey, 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 Nick. Hey, I just quit my job and I don't have any money. Do you have any (laughs) advice on finance? (laughs) Um, I will bring a book that will possibly help you um, because uh, uh, Nick, you say you don't have any money, which means you're broke, and oh, That's right. I don't I know precisely no your birth date and your um, social security number and the street you were born on, but I would say you're somewhat in the in the range of being a millennial. So, since you're a broke millennial, I'll read a book called Broke Millennial about how not to be broke 
You still have to be a millennial, but you, you can stop being broke, apparently, if you follow Aaron Lowry's advice. I haven't read this yet, so we'll see if it's any good. I hope it is, because if not, I'll be presenting a book I don't care for. <laughs> Which happens sometimes, Lynn. More behind the than curtain. you might expect. <laughs> <laughs> um, Nick, and I want to bring a classic in the field. Um, it's been a long, I have read my book, but it's been an awfully long time. Um, it, it, this is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. What the rich teach their kids about money that poor and middle class do not by Robert T. Kiyosaki. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to revisiting it this week, Nick. And I think you're a dad now. I think this book right. is going to make you a rich dad. Yeah, I mean, if, if those are my two choices... Rich sounds yeah. better. Yeah, rich is better. If well, those right, are the right. only two. We were talking about redemption arcs. You know, you, you can go from uh, rich dad, poor dad to rich dad, or from broke millennial to, I don't know, joke? Joke millennial? Woke millennial? Joke millennial. From a broke joke to millennial. a joke. Fantastic. Ian, I would really like to hear about your book. Cool. Well, I can tell you about my book. Um, it's really interesting. I think both of our books, both Joe's and mine, deal with the real past, the historical, factual past, but they mythologize differently. Okay. So Before we get to the analysis, <laughs> why don't you tell us what your book is about? <laughs> I was trying to lead into it. Okay. Well, okay, okay. Okay. He's going to do it in poem form. I want you to lead. My book is uh, very, very difficult to talk about because it kind of contains multitudes. The, 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 the simplest, the simplest like, structure is that it has multiple storylines. Um, there is a storyline, and, and it, does, <laughs> it does a really nice job setting off which is which, using um, which chapters are which storyline, using uh, silhouettes. So there is a silhouette of a young black boy, and there's a silhouette of a middle-aged black man. and um, so wait, 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 wait. When you say silhouettes, wait, do you mean like we're talking like the iPod commercial here? Are is you it being actual pictures again? of silhouettes? No, no, no. Like yeah, actual like physical, there... like, like pictures. Like this is like the sil- on the cover or like on page 30, there's a silhouette yeah. of a young boy. Yep. Yeah. And that's, oh, okay. that's how you know, okay, we're back with, we're back with the boy. Okay. We're back with the man. So there, there are these two storylines. Um, one of them, the boy, um, his name, or he's referred to in the book as Soot. Um, he's a young black boy who lives in North Carolina and he has impossibly dark skin. These are the words of the book, impossibly dark skin. And he hates it. Um, and he hates the fact that like other black people kind of mock the darkness of his skin. And he hates the fact Uh that having, um, just black skin of any hue will single you out, um, in certain circles. So he kind of, he hates his skin. Um, he has a pretty happy life, but, um, no surprise, it's a buildings roman, and th- things kind of uh, go go bad a little bit for him. Uh, that's one storyline, the storyline of Soot, um, and it's not clear like exactly where he lives or exactly when he lives until kind of the end of the book, which I'm not going to spoil. The other storyline is our main character, who does not have a name. Um, he is an author. He has a condition, a medical condition, where he can't tell imagination apart from reality. And also he has a drinking problem and he has recently written uh, a hell of a book and he's on a book tour and the name of the book is hell of a book and everyone keeps like describing 
the book to him as oh, it's a hell of a book. Um, he's yeah. on a book tour. So, so, so in the book that you've read, we do have layers here, don't we? So many confusing the book layers. That you've read is called yes. it's called hell of a book. Yes, but in it, your author who does not have a name has written a book, and that book is called hell of a book. Yes, correct. And also, okay, people describe the book like you know right. you'd say, wow, that was that was a, that was a hell of a game last night. You would say the people come up to him and they say, you, I love your book. Just a hell of a book. So yes. And to make these layers, author doesn't have a name. Correct. Who's Jason Mott? Well, so Jason Mott shares biographical characteristics with both soot and the author. Mm -hmm. I'm very confused. (laughs) Jason Mott has written a book called hell of a book, which the national book awards said, Figuratively, this is a hell of a book. And they- sometimes, sorry, sometimes we read books for this show, Nick, that are very interesting, but we have this like sense of dread as we read them because we're just like, I have no idea how I'm going to explain this. <laughs> I want to, what's the medical? Yeah, no kidding. I, no, I get that. <laughs> I, I, I understand and respect that. Uh, Ian, the medical condition of he can't distinguish between reality yes. and imagination? I've never yes. heard of anything like that. Is that real? <laughs> what is that called? What's that medical condition called? Well, he doesn't refer, he doesn't say like imaginitis. I'm diagnosed terrifying. with, I'm diagnosed with hydroplosive paranomasia. He's just like, when people talk to him, when he talks to people in the world that the situation seems a little bit odd, he tells them, I'm sorry, are you real? I, I have this medical condition. Oh, I love this. Which I, I this is makes like when me you're lucid that, dreaming and you count your fingers. Sorry. Yeah. So so the book is very the book is very vague on certain things. And the book is uh, the, the stuff with the, I'm calling him our main character. We do have these two storylines, but the author, the grown up, um, he his stuff is told from what's called a limited first person perspective. So we don't get a, a mm-hmm. bird's eye view gotcha. of the whole world. Um, we get just his own perspective on what's happening in front of him. So we can't always tell whether this is real or not because he can't always tell whether this is real or not. So, okay. okay just to clarify, we have yeah. no idea what's going on in this book. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a hell of a book. <laughs> it's, it sounds okay, really good. Kicker. Okay. Check it out. Our main character, our unnamed author, when people ask him, what's your book about? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> people, oh, I identify over the course, with that. Over the course of the novel, it becomes clear, like, actually, um, the, the, the reason he doesn't know is because of, like, suppressed trauma and stuff. But people ask him, what's your book about? And he looks at them and he says, I don't know. So there are layers upon layers upon layers. Um but your author's name is Jason Mott. That is, I'm looking at a picture of him. <laughs> he's real. The author, the author of my book, it? poet okay. and novelist, Jason Mott. He's published four novels and a couple of books of poetry. He is a real person. He is from the yeah. town of Bolton, North Carolina, which just so happens to be, Bolton. happens to be the uh, home of both the main character of the book and of Soot. So, Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Um, hey, um, I'm really proud of you. Take a breath. Yeah, Ian, nice you did job. Great it's, so far, Ian. It's tough. Maybe be- eventually we'll talk about the book. Yep. I'm gonna I'm gonna call back 
to another National Book Award winner for fiction, which I have brought to this very show, um, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. You guys remember that one? Mm -hmm. I remember that he's not actually invisible and that there was a lot of chicanery that started that episode. I mean... Maybe, maybe well, not. He's not physically. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. okay. I, I remember it particularly because of the spear fight at the end. Um, mm-hmm. Classic. Also, I remember it because it was, uh, well, I brought it for our instant, our instant classic um, big city books episode. Um, <laughs> right. So right. if you're looking for what hell this. Hell of a theme. So um, <laughs> Invisible Man is a book about, um, a book about class and a book about racial divides, a book about politics, a book about taking action, a book about being invisible. It's a chaotic book. It's a book that kind of does the buildings Roman thing, but um, it plays with surrealism. So this book is a little bit less chaotic and definitely less buildings Roman than invisible man is. But I would say this book is equally just, just as surreal and kind of funny as uh, Invisible Man, and it's horrifying in ways that Invisible Man kind of gets to, um, and it's engrossing. It's absolutely engrossing. So um, those are my talking points, and I can go through like surreal and horrifying and engrossing, but I feel like I've already lost you again. So what can I clarify here? Do you guys remember Invisible Man? Um, I thought I did, but then you said that he actually was invisible, and now I, and now I'm confused. I mean, I yeah, I have a memory of it. Is <laughs> Okay, I, I, I'm not lost. I, I, I just we're, we're with you. Keep going. Tell, okay. tell us about so, this book, however you'd like. Yeah, I, th- I think I've got it. If Joe's, if Joe's book is centered around sort of the balance between familial love and the institution of slavery, is that fair to say, Joe? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. It, it like walks a tightrope between yeah. those things, and and maybe includes both, containing both millions. Mm-hmm. Um, my book balances police brutality and self-respect. I'm not going to say self-love because self-love has kind of some bad connotations. It's not like self-centeredness, but it's a sense of Mm -hmm. valuing, like recognizing one's own value, recognizing that one is not inherently disposable. And so it's kind of got this, it's, it's dealing with police brutality. One of the prominent motifs early in the book is everyone's like, did you hear about that poor boy? And our, our main character, the author is like the, the, the unnamed author. He's like, oh yeah, so bad. And he does this because he, he doesn't need to know which, which boy was shot by the police. He's like, you can just say the same things. It's a new one every now and then. And Oh, right. And like he knows he can kind of trot out these sound bites because this is back goes back to Sisyphus and, and the myth of the, the guy pushing the rock up the hill. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, and so this this book kind of deals with that balanced against. Do I as a human being and especially for these characters, do they as black people in America in the 21st century have value? What is that value? Where can they find that value in a society that to them seems designed to completely devalue them? Um, so one of the ways they do this, um, one of the ways that this this happens is kind of through surrealism. 
Um, at various points, this is a, a, a bonkers book, and, and I laughed a bunch of times, way more than I thought I would in a book focused on police brutality. Um, at one point, our main character is flying across the country, and he's in a business class, and he meets Nicolas Cage. Oh, wow. And he has this conversation with Nicolas Cage. He's like, he's doing the, the hero worship thing. He's like, oh, you're so cool and stuff. And Nicolas Cage dispenses this deep psychological wisdom about, you know, valuing what you bring to the table and, and loving yourself and, and appreciating like your own innate value as a person, which I, no disrespect to Mr. Cage, but you wouldn't really expect that kind of thing from him. He has sort of right. made a career of um, not being particularly Careful. philosophically deep. I'm tr- treading carefully because I, I want him to be a friend. <laughs> right. We do not want to alienate Nicholas no, Cage no, this def- week. Well, especially because apparently, according to this book, um, which says absolutely true in the title, this book says it's absolutely true in the title. So it might be actually yeah. true. Um, so that's, there- you know, last week, uh, sorry to interrupt you, Ian, but I have a very important interjection oh. here. Uh, last week, I wrote a game for Anne of Green Gables, and it's like Anne with an E, Maud without the E, and it was celebrities who spelled their names strangely. Nicolas Cage was one of the answers. Nick, do you know how Nicolas Cage spells his name? Uh, I know that that segment was cut for time. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even play it. I didn't Nicholas even, I didn't even Cage. do it. Uh, uh-huh. is it it's, I think it's Nicholas without an H. Mm, good guess. Um, that, that is actually right. But he also goes by Nick NIC. Just okay, NIC. I'd say it's a great guess. Then. It's a correct guess, yes. <laughs> well, well, I mean, it's more like the Nick NIC. I'm sorry. Ian, I uh, thank you for thank you for yielding the floor. Uh, I, and this also kind of reminds me of one time that I was on a plane with Ruben Stuttered. So <laughs> cool. I didn't really have a choice there, Joe. You just sort of um Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah, yeah, just, just like, started like shouldered my sure. way right anyway yeah, but it did come out of your time Ian so that's always Love it. interesting Love to see uh, it. balancing act hey Ian I have a question can you talk about the plot of this book I feel like I'm a little lost on right. some of the pieces can you give me we some of the who bo- what why when because we have like two guys we have some silhouettes we have Nicolas Cage on a plane there's a lot of good elements Ruben's here yes Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, it's that's just how my brain works. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do for you to explain this book, but I need yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I dig that. Oh, it's really hard because this is not a book with a conventional plot. I would say it. It 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 follows that. So the the storyline with with Soot follows him growing up, um, experiencing some really hardcore family tragedy, coming to terms with a world that is designed to hurt him. Uh, he learns to actually physically turn himself invisible. Um, not no, no like invisible man type joking here. This is absolutely serious. He can go invisible. Like he's wearing in a cloak invisibility. Um, that's amazing. So that's kind of his arc. And then there's some tragic stuff that happens in his life, which no spoilers. Um, and then there's the storyline of, our main character, our unnamed author, and a lot of his story is kind of him getting extremely drunk. He meets up with, or he 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 uh, he starts to see. He starts to see a little black boy with um, impossibly dark skin, kind of hanging out with him, but nobody else can see this little black boy. 
and they have conversations and he then is in a morgue after, well, in the middle of a date, he's in a morgue and he sees a black boy's body under a sheet that's been shot a bunch of times and it's identical to the little black boy he's been hanging out with. But the little black boy he's been hanging out with insists that he's real and not a ghost and not dead. And remember, he has this medical condition where he can't tell what's real from what's imaginary. Yeah. And then he meets. So is this is this book just OK? Can I just so can I make some assumptions here? Is this just a book about systemic racism and how, you know, he could have easily been this other. No, uh, you think it's going there. And that we all have no name and that, you know, you know what I mean? Like it's all, he's like, it's very symbolic of like just another name, just another, you know, story and how Mm -hmm. we all just kind of move on with this systemic racism and don't accept it and change it. You, okay. It has those, it certainly has those messages, but it doesn't, you you like okay you would say oh an unnamed main character oh the little black boy doesn't actually have a name he's just referred to by the color of his like impossibly dark skin and this is always whenever i say that right that's not me that's the book um well, we've heard stories like that yes well, you you your mind goes to oh they're 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 sort of it goes they're there. silhouettes yeah. they're 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 everyone right. they're every man but the thing is like as the book progresses it turns out to be really a character study of our unnamed main character author dealing with his trauma and dealing with a world that seems to not have a place for him and dealing with his sort like of a personal non-personal. Yeah. So it, it, it morphs from, and that's, I think part of the genius of this book is it morphs from a story that we've all seen before mm-hmm. to a deeply personal, deeply character driven exploration of what it actually looks like in the flesh to to confront trauma in your past part of this and i I mentioned the layers part of this is the layer of autobiography so both soot and our main character are from the town of bolton in north carolina and Jason Mott is also from there and there is a way in which he is both of these people and he is using this book as a way I think to write towards or to write himself towards how do I live in this world how do I exist in a world which seems not to have a place for me. It took him 10 years. He said, he said, I wanted to write this book. I've been working on writing this book for 10 years to tell this story. So it's not like he just kind of banged it out. Um, it's a process. And there's a degree to which the book itself feels therapeutic for him, but also therapeutic for the reader. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I've got two things. Yes. First of all, I think like a man talking to an invisible boy and he kind of assumes he's fake, but then like the boy keeps insisting that he's real right there. That makes me want to read this book. Like, like I want to read that scene. That sounds amazing. I love it. Second thing, Ian's book set in North Carolina. My book set in Ooh. South Carolina. We might not know who the judges are for the national book oh. awards, but I think there's a bias, guys. I think there's a yeah, big that seems to be Carolina a strong Carolina bias. bias. Strong yeah, do you Carolina think big bias. Carolina? Do you think they're big. maybe going to join into one state soon? 
hey, I didn't want to say it here, right? But I'm just saying, pretty suspicious. And, and really own the, the book racket, the book award <laughs> racket. They're going to take over. I hate it when it always comes down to fiction versus nonfiction because they both sound great. It's like, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) They they both sound pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. Ian, Ian, yours sounds uh, more abstract, right? Like it's fiction, it's fictionalized. Yeah. It tells a larger story. Mm -hmm. Uh, Joe. Yours seems like the polar opposite, which is like... Yeah, super concrete, rooted in history, 100 pages of footnotes. Yeah, a physical, <laughs> tangible piece of history yep. uh, told through a book. Um, Joe, you lose. I always, oh, what? I, yeah, I thought I had I, it. I thought you had it too, yeah. yeah. Ian's book sounds pretty good. I like the idea of it being more abstract. and It's not the same subject, but... It kind of is. Yeah. From what yeah. I've heard today. It kind of is. <laughs> I, um, um, I, I was sold when he was talking to the invisible boy. Like, like I was I was just it, all in right there. Yeah. And when you told me that, I'm like, yeah, Joe makes a great point. You should win tonight. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Lidheads, as you know, there's always a loser here, but it's never the Lidheads. Uh, lid- <laughs> <laughs> Did you practice that in front of a mirror? (laughs) Lidheads, if you want to help the show, the best thing you can do is head over to youdon'tknowlitpodcast.com. Suggest us a theme, suggest us a book. We love reading your suggestions. If you don't care what we read, you can head over to social media, follow us, like us, love us, whatever uh, you would like to do. And if you have exhausted all other options, feel free to suggest it to a friend, leave a review on a podcast player of your choice, or, uh, you know, hey, just keep listening. We, We like it when you listen. We like it when we hear from you here's the quote he's talking to the the invisible boy invisible to everyone but himself and he he broaches this topic maybe my story is a love story and the boy laughs he says that's so corny laugh all you want but i think learning to love yourself in a country where you're told you're a plague on the economy you're nothing but a prisoner in the making that your life can be taken away from you at any moment and there's nothing you can do about it. Learning to love yourself in the middle of all that, hell, that's a damn miracle. <laughs>